Welcome to Unframed, the podcast which hosts talks and conversations about South African art and artists. I am your host, Anthea Pockroy. In this episode, we listen to an online panel discussion hosted by Vansa, the Visual Arts Network of South Africa. An important aspect of Unframed, besides from my interviewing artists and art practitioners directly, is recording conversations that are initiated by others. Before lockdown, as you will see in our archive, I recorded talks at places like Witz Art Museum, Art Joburg, Cape Town Art Fair, to name a few. In the last few months of lockdown, there has been a surge of online webinars and panel discussions, globally and in all sectors. There are such interesting and exciting conversations happening around South African art, and I like the idea of collating these talks into one platform and presenting them to you. At the beginning of June, Vansa hosted an online dialogue with arts practitioners whose practices span various disciplines. They shared their thoughts and experiences of this moment, their reflections on navigating precarity, how they are surviving creatively, and what new or different possibilities exist for us as a visual arts sector. The panel was hosted by Vansa director Rafilwe Nkomo with panelists Nadira Patel, Mika Conradi, Masimba Sasa, and Tata Mahoti. Thank you to Vansa for allowing us to share this talk on our platform, and I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation. Hi, everyone. Hi, and welcome to this third Vanza COVID-19 gathering, um, looking at perspectives of creatives in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So for this session, we've asked four arts practitioners working in different disciplines to join us for a discussion about their experiences around the pandemic, their responses to it, and how they're thinking about resilience and precarity, um, equity, surviving, and surviving creatively, not only through this moment, but in the future. My name is Rufi Rangomo, I'm the director of FANSA, and I'm joined by Nadira Patel, an artist, researcher, designer, project manager, and sessional lecturer at the School of Arts. Uh, Mika Conradi, an independent curator, researcher, and project manager. Masimba Sasa, a photographer, filmmaker, lecturer, and trainer and Tato Mokhotsi, an independent curator, lecturer, um, and trainer also. So Vanza operates, as many of you know, um, because it feels like this is a family meeting. <laughs> so it's <laughs> But we operate as a support network. And just as a reminder, I think, because maybe we can just hold that in some way, um, because we're thinking about ourselves and reimagining ourselves in this moment um, as a network and as a participatory membership-based organization and what that means, particularly in this moment and also going forward. Um, so we operate as a support point and development agency for contemporary art practice in South Africa. We develop industry knowledge, resources, networks, and projects that are concerned with realizing new social, cultural, and economic possibilities for contemporary art practice in South Africa and in the wider African context. So just a quick note on how this will work. Your microphones are muted um, and everyone except the presenters' cameras are off. So we can just sort of manage this process and 
data issues, things like that. Um, but please feel free to use the chat function um, to share comments and questions, and we'll highlight these towards the later part of the discussion in the Q&A section. So we're recording this session for those who cannot attend and for yourself as well, if you want to kind of review this afterwards and we'll post it on our social media and on our website. And the session will run for about an hour and a half. As I mentioned, the last 30 minutes will be for Q&A and the first hour will just be for sort of broader discussion. Um, we've titled the session Surviving Creatively as a way to interrogate the ideas of what it means to navigate complex times. Um, I've been challenged by the word unprecedented, um, which is often used to describe this moment largely because whilst the issues we're seeing are illuminated in a particular kind of way and in a very difficult way, they're hardly new, right? And you, Tato, Masimba, Nadira, Mika, um, you've shaped your careers and practices in such very distinct and unique ways and you've adapted to change and shaped um, your way of being in such a nuanced way that works particularly for you, but I think could be learnings for many of us. Um, so, you know, without much further ado, I think that I want to just sort of take it to you um, and think about how you're handling this moment, um, what's emerging for you. So, um, Masimba, maybe you want to start us off? Oh, goodness. Well, um, I had an important conversation with a friend last week, and, and I had an epiphany, because I think we, we keep associating um, the time that we're in with it being quite unique and therefore having to relearn how to adapt and reposition ourselves. But I think what seems quite similar for me is when we went into recession. So think of, say, uh, you know, end of 2008, splitting over into uh, 2009. And um, so I look at that time in the same manner that I do um, this time in terms of um, adapting and trying to figure out or rejig, um, you know, how one um, lives and how one uh, tries to survive. So I guess the, the, the key thing, I guess, for me is that um, it's just a different beast that we're having to deal with. But what we've had to employ in the past when we've all been confronted with challenges are somewhat the same. Yeah, um, I mean, that's a really important point, right? Like, we're all navigating these different challenges. Um, I wonder how that looks like for you, Nadira. Um. Thanks. Uh, so, to, you know, to pick up on something that Masimba is saying, um, and I, I, I agree in some way um, that, and I'm, I've been asking myself, and at the beginning of the lockdown, I kind of asked myself, what is, what is similar um, about this moment to previous times when things have gone a little bit upside down? And what is different in this moment? Um, and I think, you know, when you, when you read out the list of things that I have attached to my name, um, 
I, I sometimes want to laugh, but I, but I also realize that I have those many things because that is, that is my version of an adaptive practice in a sense. Um, so I, I have all of these different ways of working um, because they allow me to be flexible, especially in kind of confusing moments or moments when, uh, you know, it allows for the flexibility of one thing to fall apart um, while still being able to pick up somewhere else. So, you know, at the, um, I, I was, I have multiple things going on um, almost all the time. And this is how I've worked for, for many years now, um, having the kind of security of part-time teaching work that allows me to be a little bit more flexible with design work, um, to be able to take on design projects in a way that is not always so consistent. Um, so some good months, some quiet months, some bad months. Um, but having some, so, so I've managed to find ways to have some kind of stability that allows for flexibility in other moments. And this year I had actually, I had signed up to be a project manager on a, on a huge conference project um, at WITS. And the day that the lockdown started, it was announced that the conference was canceled. And that was going to be like a huge amount of income for my year that I had committed to. Um, and I had therefore not sought out other kinds of design projects for the year. And in that moment, I kind of thought, oh, you know, this is, this is awful. This is terrible. I now need to figure out how to make up what I have lost for the next eight months. Um, and, you know, it takes, it takes a little bit of, you know, moment, moments of having panic attacks and moments of deep breathing and lots of rescue remedy and lots of talking with my partner who says, you've been through this before. It's actually not new. Uh, it's not entirely new. You've had moments where you've had bad months where work is not flowing in. Um, things are not happening the way that you plan, but things flow back. And I think, be, you know, learning to adapt to the flows is something that's taken me some time. But being able to recognize that it is a flow is important for not complete, completely kind of, you know, losing your mind um, when things are upside down and they are completely upside down. Um, but I think I've managed to sort of, because of the many different ways of working, I have sort of managed to say, okay, well, one, th one major thing has fallen, fallen off the kind of schedule for the year. How do I pick up some of the others and try to find another way to work? Um, so adapting with a kind of flow is something that I think is something that I, I, I am actively working towards a lot of the time. Thanks, Nadira. I mean, I think that um, this element of flexibility and adaptiveness and being able to do that relatively quickly um, is so key and something that I've seen in, in, in all your practices. Um, but I think it's also these ebbs and flows that you're speaking about, right? Um, Mika and Tato, maybe Mika first. Um, how are you navigating these sort of ebbs and flows um, and how is your work sort of changing um, in this moment? What are you seeing now? Um, yeah, where are you at? I think you're muted. Yeah. So, um, so, I mean, I, I completely agree with Nadira and I've, I've also had um, a number of projects that have been postponed or sort of cancelled completely. Um, and income that I was relying on and that I had planned for, um, for the past, for like the next year at least. Um, but I also decided last year um, 
to take on a small, like a very, very, very small consulting job that, that, you know, is only a couple of hours a week. And that would be like my, what I would call like my bread and butter. So it really doesn't pay me very much at all. But if, if everything was to fall apart, I would have this little thing that came in every month um, to sustain my sort of like essential needs, rent, food, petrol, etc. Um, and luckily that, that, that hasn't been canceled. So I find myself sort of like leaning very heavily on that. And I'm, I'm quite grateful for the foresight that I had. Um, but I also sort of um, experienced this, this, um, this sort of reorientation around my daily work priorities. So um, I'm a freelancer and I take on a lot of freelance work, but, but a lot of that is um, in service of um, carving out creative time for myself. So being able to produce creative projects, um, whether it's on my own or through Pool, which is, um, which is a small organization that I run with Amy Watson, um, so that I don't have to monetize those projects. So we're able to be experimental and we're able to um, do things that are not commercially viable. Um, I have this other work that can keep that afloat. And so things have sort of reoriented because now, now I have more time um, for these sort of creative pursuits that I was doing nocturnally or was doing at odd hours during the day. And um, I'm, I'm now sort of focusing on those projects more. And now I have the time to focus on those projects more, which has been really quite wonderful. And, and even though those projects are logistically dense, usually um, the logistics of that has sort of fallen away because we either don't have the resources to program online. Um, and we're also quite like skeptical of this, um, this like, it's like overwhelm of digital programming. Um, um, and so now we are working with artists and I'm working with artists also personally. Um, and instead of having these like weekly meetings where we just talk about admin and logistics and fundraising, we're talking about the project and the concepts behind the project. And we're starting little reading groups so that we can like sort of connect again on an intellectual level and on a conceptual level and on a creative level, which was something that we in some cases just, just didn't have the time for, or, or just couldn't, couldn't do in the ways that they wanted to. So um, there are all these sort of shifts that, are happen, that have started happening. Um, and of course, like none of these are utopian shifts. I mean, there's a compromise to everything. So there's more creative time for something, but you have less income, you know? So, you know, everything is a compromise. Thanks, Mika. And Tata, for you, how are you handling and navigating that compromise, right? Um, because I think all of you are, are master plate spinners. <laughs> Um, jugglers of note, but how are you finding it in this moment? Um, how are you? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can relate to what's been said by um, everyone else in terms of sort of being forced to stop and uh, reconfigure what is, um, in terms of professional practice, what is of most value. Um, with the time that we have uh, at home. Um, but for the most part, um, I was lucky enough to sort of um, last year also pick up on some consultative work uh, with the Apartheid Museum. 
I mean, that's something that I took on as a kind of challenge to myself to work in a space that is that difficult. Um, uh, and but that sort of helps me also situate my um, the political project that is sort of inherent to my master's studies a bit. So it's like this twofold um, um, way of working where I'm studying and then I'm also trying to apply what I'm studying to the work that I'm doing at the museum. And that has been interesting and that has sort of occupied a lot of the uh, time that I would have otherwise been being quite anxious about, you know, about the, the practical things in life, like how am I actually going to pay the bills and so on and so forth. There is kind of like this end goal that I've been occupied with uh, since last year. So by the time the lockdown happened, I sort of had to, um, uh, I took a moment to sort of deal with the existential Oh, Tato, I think we may have lost you. Okay, so whilst we're working on getting Tato back, because I think that thought was an important moment just about where she was taking a moment um, for herself personally, because I do want to touch on that and, and, and care for ourselves um, maybe a little bit uh, towards the end. Um, but Masimba, a lot of what has been raised also, I know it's something... Oh, Tato, are you back? Can you just holler, say something? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so, Masimba, I think that a lot of what has been raised also is something that you raise quite often, right? Like how to maintain um, a creative practice when you are doing a lot of consultative work um, or are doing a, a lot of work to, to pay the bills. How do you keep on nourishing yourself creatively as an artist? Um, as someone who operates from a creative space. Um, could you maybe speak a little bit to that and how you're act actively doing that in your own practice? Um, so I would have to say at, at this moment, um, there's very little active pursuit of the creative at the moment. Um, because I think one realizes that at different moments, um, you kind of wake up not knowing who you are on, on different days and, and how you feel about your responses to things. And so my approach at the moment is to deal with the things that um, I've got some level of control over. And what I have some level of control over is um, continuing to um, create a curriculum for the students at the market photo workshop and to um, continue to um, assure our students that we're there for them in these incredibly difficult um, times. And also, I guess, more from um, a, a business point, just to continue to reassure um, clients that I service um, that I'm still there for them. And, it, it, and I think Nadira might have uh, touched on this, that you you one aspect or element of, of your practice or your work uh, comes to the fore and then subsequently what happens is that an, another element and another element of it kind of diminishes or, or, or suffers um, the only thing I think I could say that I've done in the pursuit of um, personal projects 
is to start engaging with um, um, organizations or people who are working on projects that I would like to engage with and more really just from a, a, a touch point thing because we keep being told that all the kids are sensitive right now and now is really not the time <laughs> to be, you know, um, throwing your, your interests and your things at people. So, and I think in that one kind of has to, it's like a delicate balance. You, 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 you've got interests, they don't go away. And I think half of the plan is knowing when to introduce and when to talk about those things. And I think within my world, it just seems um, not possible. And it seems like it has to be done and one has to tread quite gracefully around that. Um, because to a large extreme, people do care, but they really don't. And they really shouldn't. Just given um, the times that we're in. Could you speak a little bit more to that? What do you mean by they really shouldn't? Well, so I mean, um, I think it goes without saying that um, we're more than what we do or what we're known for. So in a, in a moment where you're reaching out to someone um, to work on a project or to bounce ideas off them, um, more often than not, you're meant with a different side or the other human side of them that you're not aware of or never experienced. And normally that's what then informs whether you engage with them or not. Mm. So yes, that thing is important, but you get to a point where you're like, hang on, um, whilst things actually need to be done, this isn't the time for it. Nadira, um, how are you finding that, particularly as an educator yourself, right? Um, and I think you've invited a few of your students and I hope they're here as well. Um, how do you manage and also introduce and consistently center care um, and, and the human aspect um, in all of this, right? And I think Mika was also mentioning around sort of not everything can be sort of transported to this digital space and what happens, what opportunities then exist and what then is lost and how do we hold space for ourselves as creatives, um, as educators, um, as learners, as just people. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a bit of a hard question to answer because I think I'm, it's something that I'm still struggling with. Um, and I've been teaching, so I've been teaching quite almost full time for the past uh, two months. Um, this was actually my busiest teaching period uh, with Vits in the fine arts degree. Um, and it's been, it's been quite difficult to, on the one hand, make sure that you are keeping up with absolutely everyone and keeping some kind of schedule so that people feel that they have something to work towards, that they, that they keep up with themselves. So, so, so designing something that allows for people to keep up while also leaving a lot of room for flexibility, for vulnerability, for, for people who are feeling that they cannot keep up. Um, and, you know, I mean, it takes a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations with a lot of students and um, it, it can be quite, it can be quite heavy um, because 
you know, you, on the one hand, you, you, you want to be aware of and you want to be sensitive to what, uh, you know, a lot of the uncertainty that a lot of people are trying to come to terms with. And at the same time, I myself am feeling quite uncertain at moments about whether I'm doing the right thing, um, whether I'm saying the right things, whether I'm being caring enough, whether I'm being hard enough, whether I'm being strict enough, but also flexible enough, right? And, and finding that balance is something I think maybe that I had started to think about in relation to my practice in multiple forms, even before this moment of moving online. But moving online makes it even more difficult to, to be able to gauge where somebody else is at, how they're feeling, um, how they're managing, how they're coping. Um, and, I, and I find that a kind of daily struggle because I have to check in with myself to see how I'm doing before I you know, am able to fully check in with the next person to make sure that they're doing okay. Um, so it is quite a, it's, it's something that requires constant work and constant reflection on an everyday basis. How am I? How are you? How are you feeling? Are you coping? Are you managing? Um, and then on the other hand, um, you know, so, so I'm teaching full time, but I'm also, you know, doing design work at the same time. And, and in that design work is also, so on the one hand, the teaching is about, you know, keeping up a program with students, being able to reflect on, you know, theoretically, artistically, creatively, what is happening around us, how our world is changing. And then from the design side, working with people to imagine, working with some of the organizations that I work with, um, to imagine how they start to image themselves and, and produce or publish some of their work in ways that are sensitive, in ways that are open and flexible, and in ways that accurately or adequately reflect how they are also questioning who they are and what their goals are and what their ideals are in terms of the social justice work that they do. So there's, there's like these multiple kinds of uh, conversations around vulnerability and sensitivity to content, to, to, to the content that you're sharing, the ideas that you're talking through, but also the feelings of the people who you're having these conversations with. Um, I hope that answers your question. I think I might have diverted a bit. That my connection is being very glitchy all of a sudden, yeah. Oh, okay, no, 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 don't worry. The, the internet uh, spirits were calling upon them <laughs> to come and assist in this moment. But um, you were sharing around how last year you'd had to sort of make some existential decisions and um, prior to this call, whilst we were just sort of testing sound, you had mentioned that you're also in a process of almost mapping your, your community and your connectors and who you can lean into and what it is that you can lean into um, and the spaces of care um, and even work and opportunities that exist within your own community. Can you speak a little bit more to that um, as well as just touch back to what it was that you were speaking about um, and referencing before. Yeah, I mean, uh, the idea of network has been something I've been um, grappling with lately. Um, 
because of this moment of sort of having to find uh, new forms of connecting or reconnecting. Um, and a lot of what I sort of have been uh, able to do is uh, consider who in my network I keep returning to, either by virtue of the projects I've done over the years or by virtue of our shared uh, friendship. And that's been helpful in terms of uh, me figuring out um, Oh no, Tato. Your, your, your mouth is moving. <laughs> but I'm not. Okay, we're, gonna, we're going to come back um, to you in a moment. Um, Mika, I wanted to touch base with you um, because you'd also mentioned that a lot of your work, like now, is actually a lot busier in many ways. Um, and because there aren't these clear divisions between work and home, um, those sort of boundaries are, are a lot more porous, um, which is complicated um, and challenging in its own ways. I wondered if you could sort of speak a little bit to that and also maybe at this point bring in how you're caring for yourself and, um, and then how your work is also changing. You mentioned a little bit around pool being able to interrogate itself and, and create programming, whether it be reading groups um, and things like that, that are more responsive to how people are working right now, but also um, aware of the boundaries that need to be created for us to continue to do the work. You're muted, Mika. So, I mean, after, after two months, I still don't know how to Zoom properly. Um, a journey still for me. Um, so as, 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 I've, as I was talking about when I, when we were doing the sound test that, um, that because, because I'm working from home, um, there, you know, work comes into your domestic space in a way that, that it wouldn't usually. So you would, um, you would sort of come home and, and the sort of like gesture of walking through your door or walking through your passageway or, or walking into the foyer of your building or whatever is almost like a kind of cleansing of sorts where you, you walk through and you're now like inaugurated into your home, which, which, you know, if you, if you're, if you're lucky is, is quite a peaceful place. It's a place where you can like um, experience leisure on your own terms um, and ex ex experience hopefully pleasure on your own terms. And that's just sort of become a lot more complicated now that um, I'm working from home and, and I think for many others, that's also, it's also become quite complex. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out how to deal with that. I mean, the sort of practical thing that I've done now is to like not work on weekends at all. And that's a very sort of like practical application of that because else each day just sort of rolls into the other and just sort of continues on and on and on. Um, and I mean, it's, it's such a, it feels like, it feels like such a basic thing, but, but um, to like think about rituals that are buffers in the same way as coming home um, and having a buffer between work and play, I guess. And for me, that sort of buffer has been 
like like scheduling cooking at a particular time every day and i know that like i can move to the kitchen and um and perform and sort of like enact particular rituals whether it's like cutting something or chopping or sort whatever you know it's 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 like a really basic thing um but it really helps to like move me into a different kind of space um yeah i mean that's 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 sort of like one of the things that i've that i've found and and then at the same time i'm i'm sort of feeding myself which feels very generous like a generous gesture to myself that i'm i'm choosing to 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 feed myself with a home cooked meal which which isn't always available to everyone but and i'm really really grateful that 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 i am able to do this almost nightly um and so yeah this is a sort of this is, a, this is one of the ways in which i'm i'm trying to like i don't know take care of myself um and take care of those in my household at the moment um yeah <laughs> Okay, so we have Tato back. Um, that Tato. Hi, sorry guys. I'm gonna keep the video off. I just sure. changed spots. Um, so I've missed much of what was said previously, unfortunately. No, no, no. I just wanted you to finish your point because you, um, you got cut off. Or no? It's okay. <laughs> um, Masimba, I sort of to make us point and also around like these boundaries and how to consistently maintain your work as well. You and I have spoken quite a bit about um, routine as, as care, right? Um, and discipline as something that can actually um, be really great for us. And I think that, I mean, for me personally, I've had to lean into what 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 discipline and routine means and not actually have like an aversion towards it um but really be something that can be very empowering um i wonder how you're navigating that um especially as at the beginning you were speaking about how time is also just like just <laughs> what is what day is it <laughs> even though we're at level three <laughs> What day is it? What time is it? Um, and how do we continue to work in ways that are nourishing, um, but also where we can still be productive? Yeah, right. I think like Mika, I've kind of subdivided uh, my life. So, um, so you all um, be glad to know that there's actually a little corner where Zoom meetings are done. <laughs> So as it stands right now, I'm in the Zoom uh, corner or section. Um, and I think that kind of just helps in being able to, I guess, distill thoughts and to think about things. Um, and there's an area that I work from um, throughout the day. But with regards to routine, I must confess that there's a point where um, I was solely convinced that um, I wasn't going to be an overachiever. And the only crucial thing I needed to do was as if I have any control over it, was just kind of wake up alive, you know? Cause um, I don't know about everybody else, but I'm certain we've all 
uh, tested positive and tested negative in our heads multiple times throughout this past um, two to three months. Um, and once I got over the, the no overachievement bandwagon, um, I've gone back to, if it's not in the calendar, it's not happening. If it's not on my task or my to-do list, then it's a, it's a, it's a non-essential. And I think it helps shape the day. But what I've decided to do, given the fact that in my world, I feel like we're, um, our days are extended. So I say to myself that on each specific day, the goal before I go to bed is to um, achieve the five items that are on the list. And there are moments where you tell yourself you feed the dog that barks the loudest. So in other words, you you yield to the thing that's either more pressing or the thing that you know if it gets done, you can invoice for. So perhaps you do that first and then you slowly, gradually progress um, to other things. So the routine's there, but I've left room for flexibility. And I think my only rule to myself is that um, provided that all those things are achieved and done on the day that I say that they need to be done without putting too much pressure on or fixation on the time that I've allocated to them. Yeah, Madeira, I wanna touch back with you um, with regards to that, right? Um, Because I think that it's an interesting what Masimba's raised is interesting to me because um, on the one level, it's like, how can, we're in a pandemic. Like we're literally in a moment of crisis and we're not gonna be as productive or have the same level of production um, as before, right? So productivity looks a lot different. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be less, it can be more, whatever the case may be, but it's different. Um, and I'm wondering about like how you're as, as having sort of like holding and wearing these multiple hats and holding these multiple spaces consistently, even before this moment. Um, yeah, like how you will continue, how you continue to do that now in a way that still centers, um, care for yourself, care for your practice. Um, yeah, that's my question. Um, am I on? Yeah. So if you saw me smiling a lot while Masimba was talking, that's because, I mean, a lot resonates with me. And this is a question that I've been thinking about a lot for at least the past year, year and a half, and talking with a lot of people about um, this question of productivity. Um, and then the, the, the thing that comes with being or attempting to achieve productivity or overproductivity is extreme exhaustion. Um, so, I mean, I have a, to start from where I am at the moment, um, I have a pretty kind of strict routine um, for the day and a schedule. Um, you know, I wake up at the same time every day, or at least I try to wake up at the same time, which is around 5.30 I try to do some reading in the morning. I have a set time for exercise. 
and I refused to start doing any kind of work until 10 a.m. Um, so that first part of the morning is definitely, you know, dedicated to myself, to making sure that I exercise, um, to sort of also waking up sort of calmly and not rushing into work. Um, and, and the way that I remind myself not to panic because there are moments where I wake up in the morning and I want to dive into something because it's urgent. And I remind myself that my work gets the most of my attention for the day. It gets the bulk of my hours um, and the bulk of my focus. So I'm allowed and I have to allow myself that morning to sort of set myself up and to set the tone. And it's important to set the tone right so that the rest of the day sort of flows in a way that can be a little bit calm when dealing with things that, you know, are quite urgent a lot of the time. Um, and then, you know, like Masimba, I've got, I've got the lists and I make sure that I try to tick off as much of that list for the day as possible. And I, I suppose what I would add to the things that Masimba said, you know, the dog that barks the loudest or the one that you can invoice for is sometimes do the least appealing thing on the list first. Because if you get that one out of the way, everything else seems much more pleasant and much more kind of easy for the rest of the day. Um, so that's, that's something, and, and it's often for me the least appealing that I have to start with in order for the day to flow in a way that makes sense. Um, but on the, on, the, on the question of productivity, so, so very quickly, uh, I don't want to take up too much time here, but last year I... I went on a residency in, in Madagascar and I, I managed, it was a very difficult time because I was overscheduled. I had completely overscheduled myself in terms of wearing all of these hats and doing all of these different kinds of work. So I had teaching work, I had design projects, and I was on a residency at the same time. And things were not coming to an end. A project was not ending, emails were not stopping, and I was completely unable to sort of break away from all of the multiple things I was doing and try to focus on the creative work. Um, and the creative work in the end, or the, the, the work that I produced in the residency, started to actually be a space where I came to terms with being overscheduled. And what that overscheduling was doing, and what that routine and the kind of the the rigidity of my lists and my planning and what all of that was doing for closing off room for being able to be spontaneous, um, to be adventurous, um, to walk down pathways that were, were not on any maps um, and to, to take time for doing things slowly and calmly. So I was trying to sort of have an outcome um, without having much room for actually exploration. And it's something that I'm, you know, when I, when I hit that point and I realized, oh, this is the problem. I, I've overscheduled myself to the point that I have no room to actually think or let my mind breathe uh, and, and leave room for some kind of like creative thinking is, is when I started to see, okay, the trap of my own scheduling. And it's something that I'm now able to sort of like maybe um balance out a little bit more but i still find that you know the overscheduling of having multiple jobs and trying to keep up with them all at the same time means that there is there is a kind of i feel the trap of of closing off space for spontaneity um and closing off the space for doing something that does not yield any kind of specific 
output or recognizable output. Like you go bake a cake and you have a cake that you can eat at the end. But I, so I can do that, but I can't allow myself often the time to just sit and draw for a little while because I'm not quite sure what I'm working towards. So, so there's, you know, routine and schedules and lists are amazing and they keep you together and they keep your mind sane to some extent, but they also close off space in some ways. So that's kind of my struggle at the moment. I know how to work from home because I've been doing it for a while and I've developed a routine for doing that over the past like five years. Um, so I'm not afraid of working at home and I've got a separate space where I, where I manage to, to work from, but it's the scheduling that sort of starts to become a trap. Um, yeah, sorry, I talked for longer than I should have there. No, thank you so much. Um, Mika, I wanted to bring you back in again um, because I do think that there's almost a new language that is emerging. Um, and I'm not sure what the words are per se, but it feels like a new language of how we work and what work means, what productivity means, um, what solidarity and, and collectivity also mean in terms of how we work together and the networks that we develop. Um, I think it's something that we're really thinking about at Vanza um, organizationally, but also um, in terms of what it is that we can do now um, understanding that this pandemic is also a flow and an ebb <laughs> and we're in it, um, but we're going to still be in this country and in this world. Um, so how do we work systemically um, to ensure that we're seeing the kinds of changes that we want to see and practicing it right now? Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the kind of ways of working um, or the languages um, of productivity, of work, solidarity um, that you're seeing, that you're practicing yourself? Um, so I think something that, that, um, that has been really sort of like challenging for me to, to work through is, is this sort of virtual world that we're all um, implicated in now, whether we want to be or not um, and what it means to sort of like to sort of put everything online and to live online and for liveness the, the, the sort of liveness and the sort of intimacy that you would experience um, through particular kinds of art programming um, that all being sort of um, like that sort of dissipating online, you know? Um, and for me, that, is, that has been like sort of one of the central things that's been concerning me around like how we can be together and how we can be with each other um, and how we can support each other in different ways. And so for me, it has been around like like withdrawing from particular sort of like mass online spaces, um, withdrawing from Instagram. And I mean, sort of like, like in social media, mostly um, withdrawing from that space and, and finding, finding other ways to digitally connect because they, because there really isn't, it doesn't feel as if there's, as if there's any other way um, to really be together. And this we sort of six feet apart or what is it? Two meters. 
Um, so, I mean, with my own projects and with projects that we've been doing at Pool, we've, we've sort of um, turned to, to working closely with artists that we, that, we, that we have worked with and that we're currently working with. So um, instead of like doing tons of online programming, we're instead meeting with artists, talking to them. Um, we are doing like sort of small little like very informal like i guess reading groups you could you could call them um we we choose some readings that are that, that refer to or are about um the particular project that we're all working on together and that we're collaborating with and we just talk through those and those those sort of meetings become really they become like really, really important spaces, not just for um, talking about work and talking about a project, but also talking about the sort of moment that we're in and sharing how we're all experiencing that and how we're all going through that. So, so I mean, my response has been to like really to like slow down and to and to really like bring things down and to. Um, try to create a kind of intimacy that's that's almost impossible because you know like the thing about being in public with someone or being in a shared physical space with someone is that we we pick up cues from people we we we, we are constantly picking up small gestures that are micro like micro minuscule gestures and we use those gestures to read our context and the conditions under which we are operating and we use those to communicate with each other and a lot of that is lost in online conferencing so um, it's really really tricky and it's 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 like an ongoing thing of like trying to figure out how we can support each other how we can be together how we can listen to each other um, how we can read each other in ways that are authentic um, how we can read vulnerability it's so difficult you know when you're when you're in a physical room and you're speaking it's so much easier to read when someone feels uncomfortable and to adjust yourself in relation to that or to try to make them feel more comfortable. Um, it's very difficult doing that online. So I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I'm just sort of like, like these are just sort of things that I'm thinking about in terms of solidarity and, and, and caring for each other. How do we care for each other when we have lost some sort of sense of that, like, like, like the physical sort of like sense, like how we sense when someone is, is feeling uncared for or feeling vulnerable. So that's just one of the questions that I'm, that I'm thinking through and don't necessarily really have an answer for, but that I'm trying to foreground. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's an important point um, and relates back to some of what Tato was saying in terms of, you know, really being intentional about the network, intentional about your community, um, checking in, um, and, and, and maybe also a vulnerability in saying, this is what I need, um, and asking for what you want, so that, and, and, and being open to receiving that. Um, Tato, I think you're back. So um, I just wanted to ask you, particularly from a curatorial perspective, um, and Mika touched on this as, as well, and, and I think it's been something that we've been speaking about, that a lot of things can't necessarily be migrated onto the online space. It's, a, it's its own space. Um, what does exhibition making look like um, and, and, and curating look like um, 
now and 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 what is what are you imagining and hoping for the future of of curating yo i mean that is i can only speak obviously from my own uh, perspective uh but i have been um trying to well i've been uh, you know by virtue of um my studies i've been looking at exhibition histories for instance as a point of departure to think through that um question of how where curating is going where it was going before the lockdown and where now it's being sort of pushed um uh to um and and there is a lot to uh discover when we look at the the impact that the role of curator has had within our south african context um uh by looking at you know uh exhibition histories in particular but then there's also an opportunity for obviously um a kind of slow curating um in this moment a kind of uh a discursive uh um engagement but also um at the same time the question of audience becomes quite critical who is your audience i think that question was was always a tense one even before uh you know the pandemic uh in the Johannesburg and South African context audience the art audience is a privileged audience it's an expert audience as we understand it from our perspective here um or how we've come to understand it so how do we begin to uh maybe break that apart and maybe contest that a bit more uh, intentionally um if the audience is not within a space if the audience is not um accessible to us as curators uh you know what does that mean um for our roles and and our intentions um in in hello oh oh no <laughs> tata i think we've lost you again um think so play itself out in the midst of its pandemic maybe it's something that comes Hi Tato can you just repeat the last bit of what you said cuz i think we lost you for a second Uh hey sorry once again <laughs> Um but but yeah um i think audience i think become quite central in this moment um and in a kind of a um uh uh a self interrogating kind of way like what 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 is your work as a curator um accomplishing for me that's an existential question once again which is why i am sort of pursuing um uh uh, uh or building um my theoretical um knowledge and trying to unlearn a lot of what i was doing in my uh physical practice which was really moving from one project to the next um so i'm really in a moment where i'm valuing a kind of reflexivity um and i think that is also in relation to institutions um how are institutions allowing for that kind of shift in curating as well i think what a lot of galleries and museums as we've seen over the last couple of uh weeks have done is rely on this notion of the virtual exhibition or the exhibition that lived in a space must now suddenly be virtually experienced online and it's a kind of fought um uh resolution because that doesn't always translate well it's uh you know 
um, for all artists and all kinds of artwork and art practices. So um, I think there's a kind of openness that needs to happen with institutions in terms of how we begin to think through what the curator does and what the curator can contribute in a moment like this. Thank you so much, Sato. And I think that's a good sort of segue into um, the audience that is here and um, really being uh, responsive to, to who's in, in the room. Um, so I, there aren't any questions in the chat, but I think that maybe this is, provides us, oh, there's a question from Mulemo. Um She says that um, I'm struck by how much of your work remains social and human outside of the idea of the event, whether it be an opening or something similar. This is in contradiction to the level one opening regulations that see our industry primarily as an event or a mass event based and therefore unable to open until cover is entirely under control. Do you think this time offers us different ways of thinking and perhaps even thinking about audience. So that is to anybody who'd like to answer. Um, and I think maybe, I mean, we haven't done it like this before, but um, instead of the chat, if someone, if I'm not articulating it properly um, and voice is important, please, uh, you're also welcome to be like, I wanna talk for myself. <laughs> um, so I don't know who wants to take that question on for anyone um I'll, I'll i'll take a stab at it um and something that um dawned on me is that i guess because either we're depending on how you look at things we are either two or three weeks behind uh, most of the um as you would call them developed countries and when I was thinking of my practice and my interests, I'm realizing that um, it's easy to shift my gaze of focus uh, on an audience um, that isn't currently going through the same things that we're going through either as a, as a community or as a country. Um, because then um, the terms of negotiation are completely different. So I'm choosing to completely look elsewhere um, for this current moment um, to look for an audience. Um, because if you're, if you're dealing with people who are going through the same constraints, um, there, there are quite a couple of challenges um, that come with that. And if you focus on people who uh, at some level have got some sort of relief um, both from a, a resource, be it time, and from a finance point, um, it's easier in certain instances to start having conversations that you currently can't have within the context that we're all currently in. So I think that's how I'm choosing to, to look at things with regards to audience. Yeah, I think, I think I'll also take a stab at this question. So... Um, <laughs> for me, I mean, speaking, speaking as a curator, not necessarily as a project manager um, or freelance project person. Um, 
for me, the curatorial operates in like very, very many, many, many different ways. It's not just around the exhibition. Um, and an exhibition is not for me the final destination of any of the projects that that I work on or that I collaborate on with people and with artists and with other curators and whoever. Um, for me, the, the sort of moment has really slowed things down in a way that I think is useful to think about, about how we connect and what, what I'm sort of, what I've, what I've always enjoyed working with is working with publics or the idea of a public or many publics as opposed to an audience. And by working in, in very different ways with, with a diversity of people and in, di in very different formats, not just the exhibition, you begin to work with different publics, you know, essentially. Um, and so for me, this, this, what, what I feel has always been important to me, but, but, but which I've been reminded of in this sort of like very like isolating moment where, we, where we're trying to find connections in different ways that's away from the mass event or from the mass exhibition opening or the mass attended program is, is that maybe, maybe projects need to be occurring on a smaller scale, on a, on a more intimate scale and a more, a more intentional scale. Um, and to think um, of smaller communities and smaller publics or many, many, many smaller publics where you have different kinds of projects that are a lot smaller, but because you're working um, in a smaller, a smaller sort of opening moment or public moment, maybe that project has more, um, maybe that project, I don't know how to put this, maybe that project um, is able to have a lot, I don't know, sorry, I'm not, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of the right word and I can't think of it. So, um, so like, like, like working on a smaller scale perhaps means that you have a bigger impact um, when there are fewer people in the room, um, um, when there's more space, you know, for interaction, um, when there's more space for voices to be heard. Um, yeah, I don't know if that made a lot of sense, but, but basically sort of like to, to work in smaller ways, and that doesn't necessarily mean an exhibition. Um, it means, it could mean a very small group gathering. It could mean a small, tiny little reading group. It could mean a small meal share. It could, it could mean um, a, a small zine that you make together. It could mean a series of posters that you work very closely with some artists and a printer, you know? So, you know, there are different ways of doing things perhaps. Um, yeah. Can I, can I jump in here? Yes, please do. do. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting question. And, and Mika, I think maybe, you know, what, what you're also sort of thinking towards is meaningful communication as opposed to general kind of um, dissemination of, of, of an event or something. Um, but something, so this, this might be a bit of a tangent, but something I've been really curious about in relation to the question of audience um, is, you know, in attending online seminars or webinars or conversations, I'm always curious about who else is in the, who, who else is in the audience. Um, you know, so I look at who, who else has showed up to this event. 
Um, and in some cases, so there's this thing about, you know, the organizers of an event also deciding whether you can see who else is available, who else has showed up or you only see the, the kind of speakers in an event. So you're this kind of sole audience member in a sea of potential other audience members around the world that you have no access to and you can't see. And that, you know, so, so both of those instances are quite different from, you know, what we're used to in terms of going to a gallery opening or going to some kind of conference or seminar where, where we often also go because we know we're going to see certain people and, and we know we're going to engage with people based on a common kind of idea or question that an event is, is raising or addressing that is going to bring you together. So I'm, I'm sort of, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm necessarily answering this question, but I think it is curious um, seeing what kinds of audiences um, I am able to be part of in these new online modes of doing things. So like, you know, being here, I can see who else is here. I've been part of conversations that have happened in, you know, with uh, schools in Switzerland or, um, you know, part of like a serpentine gallery conversation that I joined last week, which was incredible, but I have no idea who else attended it. And therefore, I want to talk to people about it, but I don't know who else was there. So then I get caught with this question of, so, so that experience was great for me and it was wonderful, but I don't know who else attended. And so I don't know who else to reach out to, to touch on that conversation. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult question with, with teaching also. Um, you know, I really miss the space of being with students in a, in a room together because so much of what we do in, in, in at least a fine arts degree is conversation. Almost everything happens in conversation and in discussion and in debate with students. And that's something that, you know, when you, when you try to do this online, it's incredibly difficult because you, you can't pick up the gestures. You can't tell if what, you what you're saying is making sense to people. Everybody's just behind a blank screen. Um, so that, that loss of that kind of community um, of feeling that you, you're part of a room of people um, is something that I find quite jarring physically. I get, I get a little bit agitated, um, you know, in thinking about, am I presenting myself in the, in the right way? Am I reading in the right way to, to an invisible audience on the other side of my computer screen? Um, it's an interesting question, Molema. Good one. Yes, thank you so much, Mulamu. Um, and Masimba, do you want to touch? Um, I saw your hand up. If you want to come back in, um, I think this would be a good time to do so. Otherwise, Tato, maybe. Um, I do want to um, just share. So, Adrian Marie Brown speaks of small acts of radical intent. Um, and that's what I was thinking about, Mika, when you mentioned um, these sort of small little connective. Uh, connective tissue, connective moments. Um, and yeah, so Masimba, I don't know if you want to think about the new languages of, of audience and the new ways in which we can be together um, yeah. and chime in here. Yeah. Um, I wanted to touch on what uh, Nadira said that I found that um, at the beginning of all of this, I was literally on every single Zoom session I could possibly be on. And as the weeks um, went on, I noticed that because of my very nature, I actually stopped attending 
Zoom sessions where I can't see the participants. Um, because I realized that um, I had a twofold goal. Um, one was obviously to learn and to expand, but the ability to connect to participants actually ended up outweighing what I was receiving. So in the end, um, I was more biased towards um, organizations or sessions that I knew that there would be um, a contact of, of, of some sort, because I think with our practices, um, in the absence of um, meeting up in, in spaces um, and, and connecting and showing a human side of yourself, being able to access participants helps you do that. Um, and it, 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 it helps build um, from that. And then from a teaching point, um, um, as, um, as part of the Market for the Workshop, we've had to, we've had endless sessions that have led us trying to decide which would be the best way to engage with, with students. And I think when we eventually got to a solution, um, every other word that was coming from people was uh, Zoom fatigue. And, um, and for, for our specific classes that I'm teaching, we realize that what's the best way to keep students engaged, but allow them to be in an environment where they feel that they at least have some sort of control over. And so as a result, with the classes that I'm teaching, we're now actually using Facebook rooms. And it almost came as a no-brainer in the end because you're like, um, which platform are students likely to be on the most? And which platform can they access without perhaps um, raising up issues around access and, and data? But secondly, which platform do we think we can engage them on without it also coming out as quite threatening given all that we're currently going through? And obviously this was through um, a, 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 a lot of trial and error. And now that we're there, um, there's, there's definitely better engagement than before when we were experimenting with all sorts of other things. Um, and unfortunately, I guess, all the other tools bring about um, a concise practicality to them. Um, but then it almost felt like the teaching sessions were just very one-sided. Um, it was only just literally about you coming into this platform and into the session um, and um, learning. And we're finding that I guess with a bit of wiggle room, allowing people to, all students rather to use platforms like Facebook, Brooms, um, just brings a slightly much more gentler approach to how you're doing things. Yeah, um, just to add to that, I agree. This technology obviously is dictating the terms on which we communicate um, and we interact. I'm interested in how, you know, within the South African arts uh, context, we already were a community or a group that was quite siloed in and of itself, as in we all operated within very specific networks or, you know, um, 
there were there were identifiable silos within this art uh, sector already prior to the pandemic and the technology that is now forcing us to engage in a particular way. So, I mean, this in and of itself kind of does feel like a silo. Those who are um, have access to a good internet signal, those who, you know, um, have an, uh, an understanding or an appreciation for Vance's work and sort of those who know who the speakers are and so on and so forth. So how is this technology perpetuating the silo way of, of engaging? Um, and, and perpetuating these and regenerating these silos uh, within the greater sort of art, art sector. I think that's something to consider and maybe um, contest to some degree. How do we diversify um, those who are able to, to, to participate in, in, in various platforms? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite interested in that. Thank you, Tato. Um, I mean, I think that that's such an important point, and I think it also speaks to what Nadira was speaking about in terms of how do how do we as audience um, even connect within these sort of Zoom meetings, etc. And how do and to Masimba's point, how do we meet people wherever they're at, whether it's out of Facebook or Instagram or or if it's possible in person. Um, I think. I do want to share that from our side at Vanza, just from a perspective of transparency, um, we wanted to have meetings, right? And we sort of were debating like, oh, should we do like webinars? And it's like, will look really great <laughs> to, to be like and super professional and, and, you know, and different things. But then we're like, oh, but then we could have like a meeting and that could also be a gathering in a sense. Um, and it, it could be, and I think that's again, bringing in the question of language um, and, and, and how it is that we communicate, what it means for us to be together and to come together and, 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 and to sort of um, create a more horizontal uh, access points and ways of speaking to each other where all our knowledges are equal. Um, and we, as, from Vanza's perspective, we're learning from um, the sector and from our community um, and are able to implement some of that in the spaces that we can um, have access to and the tables that we are sitting at or can sit at. Um, we have about 10 more minutes left and I just want to share a question that I got from Ichoma, which for some reason I can't seem to post um, to the collective group, but she says, I tend to be more weighted down, more weighted towards taking calculated and sometimes not so calculated risks. For me, this moment or situation with all its challenges presents a rare opportunity for us as a creative community, particularly in the visual arts sector where we are more individualistic in our practice. To look at the digital space as an opportunity to give more access to audiences that are not even on our radar to get out of our hourglasses and our head spaces and comfort zones and really think about what it means for someone in some remote village to have access to what we create and how they can engage, relate and translate. It is key more broadly an educational opportunity, if you will. And that's what Joma says. And I don't know if, um, if there's anybody who wants to sort of touch on that. I think it's, it's a lot of what you've said. Um, so whilst there are limitations to the space, there are a lot of opportunities, but 
that also means we as a sector creatively also need to be working with other sectors, right? Like how are we working with technology sectors, with educational sectors, um, you know, to really advocate for free data, for example, right? Um, I think that's, that's quite an important point. Uh, we have about 10 more minutes. Um, so if one of you want to touch on that or maybe some sort of closing reflections um, as, we, as we come to our, our last few moments together. I mean, I just, I just also wanted to, uh, to, to add to what Nadira said around um, how when we go to an event, we, we also go to sort of meet a community in many ways. So um, you go to see people and to connect. And my sort of anxiety around this particular moment um, is that it sort of sets this precedent where the virtual, and this is maybe a bit, OTT, but where, where, where particular events and projects begin to unfold online beyond the pandemic and beyond social distancing and lockdowns and things like that. Um, and my anxiety around that is, is, is also around this thing where, where the sort of work of, of building a community of practice doesn't necessarily happen um, just because we've been invited to a conference and we can all speak and then we go home. We don't usually go home. We, we have lunch together before or afterwards. Um, if you are on a residency in a strange city that you've never been to before and you get lost with the other residents, it's this moment where, where strangers move into something more, move into colleagues, move, it, move into friends. And these, these moments that are like in between moments within a larger project are really, really important. Um, and that sort of um, conviviality and familiarity that you develop with someone is something that, 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 that I worry is not possible over a Zoom meeting or over a Zoom conference or marathon or whatever. Um, so that's just, yeah, it's just, it's just something that I've also been thinking about is, is, these sort of in-between moments and what happens around, around a community of practice and um, connecting on that, on that very sort of like, like intimate, small, strange, unexpected, spontaneous way. I mean, exactly like you were saying, Nadira, like, like how, how can we be spontaneous online? I think it's a really interesting question um, and something that, that I'm, that I'm thinking through and that I'm going to continue thinking through throughout this moment and period or era, whatever we're going through. Yeah, that's interesting, Mika. Sorry, sorry to pop in quickly. Um, I've been thinking about the idea of commoning as well in some of my research, um, you know, the idea of the artistic commons and part of that is related to my interest in residency uh, and what the residency uh, the uses of the residency for the for artists um, and how they can potentially be sites of creating artistic commons, right? Um, so I think part of the challenge, as you know, what Ijeoma points to, is the individualized, individualistic um, um, 
bent of the art world um, is that it 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 often dictates how we come together and how we common right there we we tend to rely on certain cues to instigate a kind of gathering um and so or or, or collective engagement so so yeah i think part of the challenge is to to think about what new cues are being um uh pushed in this moment and in the way that we are being forced to communicate through these technological platforms and whatnot. Um, so for, for example, is social media social? Inherently, you can actually like contest that. So when uh, artists are presenting their work on an IG story, it, where is the social aspect of, of that gesture um, on a platform that's supposed to be uh, socially, yeah. Yeah, so that's quite interesting, yeah. Just, just to add to what Kat was saying, because I was also thinking about this earlier, this, this question of the audience in relation to the kind of virtual dissemination of exhibition material or a show or somebody's work. Um, you know, when the, the, the very quick translation to the online is just, a, a, it becomes more that the focus is on the idea of dissemination as opposed to a kind of a, having that community that comes together to share in a particular moment, to have a conversation, to have, you know, off-topic conversations that lead to other projects, that lead to to sort of building new work. Um, and when it comes to the social media, you know, I think like we post something and we disseminate to the entire audience that is our followers. It's not so much that we sort of seek out audiences. And I think that's what Mika is also speaking about is, you know, seeking out audiences or seeking out communities. Um, and Molemo also, and this is from a conversation I had with Molemo and Nare um, a week ago with my students, it's around how you build sort of um, small communities or groups that you fo have focused conversations with as opposed to trying to reach every audience or all audiences or broad audiences. Um, so, you know, what, what Ijeoma raises is interesting also, like you can, at, at the same time, we are, you know, so isolated physically, um, we're, we're all working from our own homes, we're, you know, engaging with each other via screens, but at the same time we have we're so hyper-connected on a global scale, we can go and participate in whatever conversation or webinar or seminar that we want to. We can log on and participate in this very kind of distant way. And there's something strange that's happening there. And I think, it, you know, to, to build on what Mika is saying is to, to think carefully and also sensitively around maybe not pushing too much for everything being online because it's, it's, you know, we might start to lose something um, if, we, if we try to push too quickly for everything to be online. And also, we start to leave a whole lot of people behind. And I know that I certainly haven't got that right in, in my own teaching work. You know, I, there are limits to what, who I can reach, who can get online, who can participate in a conversation, who even feels comfortable to participate in a conversation. Often, you know, people don't feel like they want to raise their hand or ask a question and that happens in, in physical classes as well, but it, I feel like it happens much more online where there's a kind of, there's a, there's a, a, a greater sense of vulnerability around um, 
speaking up or, or, or raising a question. So, yeah, um, I'm going to end that thought quite randomly because I don't know how to <laughs> carry on, but I think you understand what I'm saying. We do. Thank you. Um, with the last two minutes, Masimba, um, do you want to close some comments? Um, um, I was just going to touch on what Nadira said, and I think that perhaps in engaging perhaps with, with students, I think it's a thing that we forget is that, um, I guess in this time, um, one's living conditions also then kind of expose one's vulnerability, and then in turn also then they determine things like whether someone will decide uh, to have their camera on or not. Um, because um, firstly, you're asking them to come onto this platform, um, and then the next thing you're asking or demanding that they be seen. And depending on what's going on in the background, uh, being seen isn't the most um, ideal situation. Um, we had an incident last week where I had to say to, to the students largely that um, we're all in a time that we all haven't uh, anticipated. And therefore, if you're at home, it's okay for normal things that happen to happen when you're at home and you happen to be on a Zoom call to happen. So for people with kids, if your kid comes and tugs at you, don't chase them away or shoo them away. Um, because the reality is that even though we are bringing information to our students, we are invading their spaces. And sometimes they actually don't have control of what's going on in those spaces. And to rather come open-handedly and allow people to be who they are and to allow their environments to continue being the way that they are as opposed to asking people to come uh, prim and proper. Um, so I think that's, that's what we've decided on. And I, um, I think there's a huge self-relief. So in sessions where just, you know, if, if for some reason someone barges into the room and, they, you know, they start asking you to, to run an errand that you knew you were meant to, you know, handle it and come back. Thank you, Masimba. Um, so I think uh, we've come to the end of this session and in the spirit of uh, allowing <laughs> folks to return to where it is uh, they're at. Um, we're going to end it right there. We'll be having another session on the week of the 16th of July, so I think on the 17th. Um, but we will send that out on our social media pages and on our website and newsletter. Um, thank you so much, Masimba, Nadira, Mika, Tato. It's been super insightful and we're just really so thankful for um, you being here with us today. So yeah, everybody have a good day and enjoy level three. Be safe. <laughs> and Thanks for the invitation. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks a lot. This was Thank good. You for your time. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye.
Bye. That was great. Bye. Nice to hear from the audience. <laughs> Thank you to Vansa for sharing this talk with us for this episode and also to the panelists for their insights and reflections, which I'm sure resonated with many of our listeners at this moment. Be sure to visit Vansa's website for critical information around the South African visual arts community and follow them on their social media pages. They do such important work for the South African arts community. They have also recorded some other talks that you may be interested in listening to, which you can find on their Facebook page. Please follow Unframed on Facebook and Instagram. And if you use a podcast app like Apple Podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also rate and review us. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.